0: Hear the word of our Lord from the book of Job, the 27th chapter, beginning in the first verse. And Job again took up his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. Let my enemy be as the wicked, and let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off, when God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? I will teach you concerning the hand of God. What is with the Almighty I will not conceal. Behold, all of you have seen it yourselves. Why then have you become altogether vain? This is the portion of a wicked man with God, and the heritage that oppressors receive from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword, and his descendants have not enough bread. Those who survive him, the pestilence buries, and his widows do not weep. Though he heap up silver like dust and pile up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the righteous will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. He builds his house like a moth's, like a booth that a watchman makes. He goes to bed rich, but will do so no more. He opens his eyes, and his wealth is gone. Terrors overtake him like a flood. In the night a whirlwind carries him off. The east wind lifts him up, and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls at him without pity. He flees from its power and headlong flight. It claps its hands at him and hisses at him from its place. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. So I'm sure you've heard some interesting things regarding, well, me, and stuff I've been going through, and I think it's time I can give a little bit more context. Ah, uh, yes, I was fired. Kicked out, taken off of the, uh, the list of clergy there, taken off of active status. And not just out of active status, but you know, removed entirely. Now, the charges against me were a, a panoply of things that you would expect from people who are gravely offended and upset. So... Uh, I embraced white supremacism and fascism. I had contempt for ecclesiastical authority. You could say that I was was hurting certain people's reputations, supposedly. And I was uh, espousing violence. Really espousing violence. Now, I got a letter from this same Lutheran organization that I was working with as a minister. And uh, they detailed the reasons why I was fired. Why I was removed. (laughs) And a little bit of context. I spent two and a half months, eight hours a day, Monday through Friday, and oftentimes on Saturday, going through everything I've ever said. Publicly and in print and online. Everything. To see whether or not the charges they made against me were true. And to explain any unfortunate things I've said. Or to say that I was just willing to apologize for them. You know, who can tame the tongue, right? From the book of James. But uh, that plus spending about $20,000. Making a big fat long trip. Everything. Didn't really matter. Because their letter that they sent that explains the reason they fired me. None of the reasons are what I was charged for. It's things like this, quote, He is not above reproach in regard to his public statements and associations. Titus 1, 1.6, 1 Timothy three two. Well, I know what scripture they're referring to, and I'm surprised that they would think that anybody is above reproach. At all. We're all sinners. Only Christ is truly above reproach. But okay, they, they really want a reason to fire me here, so... His actions and words often seem to be with less forethought and consideration than we would expect from a pastor. Titus one seven and First Timothy three two. <clears throat> well, okay, so I have a personality flaw. I like to do stream of consciousness just a bit too much, and I'm not, I'm not a uh, not as prepared in all of my statements when having a discussion on a podcast. I guess. His seeming to allow actions which suggest violence toward law, you know. Others, as well as hostile actions toward those in pulpits, may suggest a violent attitude. Titus 1.7 and 2 Timothy 3.3. So now we're getting into hypotheticals. Seeming. Suggest. To suggest a violent attitude. Not asking whether or not I am things, but saying it looks that way enough for them to say he needs to be fired. Uh, The secret identity in my online handle being a "Quote unquote arrogant theological statement." Hmm. Okay, well they could have just looked up Urban Dictionary as to my online handle and why I chose that to be my uh, nom de guerre. But at the end of the day, that was the kind of reasons that they fired me. It's more the language of being laid off. You know, you're just not a good fit. Because even if they could not in good conscience convict me on the things that they were initially accusing me of, somebody still really, 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 really wanted me to be fired. Now, for people that want to be a little bit more in the know on this, I did not know what the exact charges were until two weeks before I had to travel across the country on my own dime with people whose travel expenses I also paid for. I had two weeks of knowing what was actually up. That's why I had to spend 400 hours going through and pouring over literally everything I've ever said. Because none of the charges were specific until that time. I was suspended from pastoral ministry that entire time. So I wasn't allowed to do my job. And uh, yeah, at the end of the day, didn't matter. Just you're fired and you're... Apparently, as much as I would love a severance package. Not getting that either. (laughs) They wanted a scalp. So you go through ten weeks of trouble, mental anguish. And then your church going through a a ton of pain here. because Because you're innocent of the charges, but they want their scalp. They really, 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 really want you fired. This is suffering. But I don't, I, this is an example. I don't want to make this entire talk here about me. Things like this sometimes happen. Life in this earth includes suffering. I know somebody who recently just underwent a really bad miscarriage. People in my life have had family troubles. My own mother has been in and out of the emergency room now for a week and a half because she had some important surgery and her blood pressure has just been spiking up and down and up and down and in and out trying to avoid a stroke or a heart attack or anything that might just up and up kill her. We go through these episodes of suffering and we ask quite often, why? What's going on? What, what's going on with our life here that this has to happen? Now, I hesitate to bring up Job. Because most of the time people don't understand it. They have a really, really hard time with it. And there are some unfortunate movements among theologians, even confessional Lutheran theologians, who want to say that God never directly causes suffering. He merely permits it. Uh, usually as a natural consequence of our sinful actions. That's, now, that's not really confessional. It's unfortunate to hear confessional Lutheran theologians saying that when uh, Luther in the large catechism points directly to God punishing people actively, directive, directly. There is such thing as punishment and chastising. So if we have to ask the question, why do we suffer? We have to say... That sometimes the answer is, you know, as it, as far as it concerns God, we suffer because we sin. We suffer because we are sinners who deserve far worse. So let's turn here with me, opening up our Bibles, let's turn to the book of Hebrews, and we are going to go to chapter 12. Now in this, this is where the writer of Hebrews makes the case pretty plainly as to why the Christian suffers. So here in the book of Hebrews, let's start here in chapter 12, verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Then no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So in Hebrews 12, the point is made quite clearly that discipline, or I prefer other translations saying the word chastising, Discipline is something God does to us, and we deserve it. We are disciplined for our sins. Now, there's a difference between discipline and uh, like a criminal punishment. You see, a criminal punishment is paying back a debt, paying what you owe. But when it comes to our sin, both original sin, as well as sins that we commit, or sins that we commit by omission. There's no paying back that debt. It's an infinite one, because it is one that separates us from God. So, when we look at God's discipline, are we paying back a debt? Absolutely not. That is for those who are damned the people who go to hell, the people who are actually punished for their sins in terms of paying back a debt, well, all right, they're going to hell. Permanently. Eternally. The lake of fire forever and ever because they will be always paying off that debt and they can never, ever, ever pay it off. Never. But for the Christian, there's still this issue of discipline. Are you being disciplined to pay off that debt? No. The writer of Hebrews makes it plain... This is discipline for your sanctification. If you or I, we commit a sin, we we do something bad. We tell a lie. Or we steal something. Or we bear false witness against our neighbor. God will discipline us for that, for the sake of making sure we grow out of that sinful habit. To make sure we don't do that again. To sanctify us and purify us from it. So Roman Catholics, they believe in something called purgatory, a, uh, a state of afterlife where all of your excess sins and your sinfulness are burned off. Because they see a lot of sin as incurring a debt that must be paid. But in all reality here, in, in what the scriptures say anyway, this life is purgatory. It is this life that God uses to purge us from evil in our hearts. And it is something that takes the entirety of our life. We will never be perfect until that moment when God perfects us after our deaths or upon the return of our Lord Jesus. So when we ask that question, why am I suffering? Why did this bad thing happen? Oftentimes, in fact, I'd say the most often, The answer to that is because we sinned and God wants us to be better. He could be calling attention to a particular sin. He could be saying that you did this and I don't want you to do it. I'm trying to get your attention and turn you around to repentance so that you are more holy, more sanctified, made into a better human being through this. That's honestly the first answer. Then there's another one. <laughs> there is a, there's a specific theology that I like to refer to as the final boss of Lutheran theology. It's the hardest one for people to wrestle with. It's the theology of the cross. And here's where we get into, well, a kind of inspection. So, the central thesis of the book of Job isn't that Job's friends are wrong. Because their idea, and something Job accepts and is arguing about, because he he figures there was some sort of mistake in the heavenly bureaucracy concerning his case. He wants to have an audience with God because there must be something wrong. But the, the central idea of Job's friends is the law. Do good to get good, and if you do bad, you will be punished. So, do good to get good. If you do bad, you get bad. The common wisdom is that if you do what is right, you will be blessed. The righteous man is blessed, while the wicked man is cursed. Now, in the central thesis of Job, the central message of Job, are those men wrong? Absolutely not. They are 100% correct. The book of Psalms alone, if you just read Psalm 1, holy and inspired scripture will say, yes, the righteous man is quite blessed by God, he is fed by God, and the wicked man will be cast off and kicked out. But, Job's friends are not telling the whole story. And they don't understand the key nuance to this. One, none of us is without sin. We all deserve punishment. We all deserve eternal hellfire. Now, by God's grace, we are saved and our sins are forgiven. So our life is not about relitigating that sin. But we should not be indignant when bad things happen to quote-unquote good people because we should be thankful that uh, worse is not happening to us. But the second thing is the central thesis of the law, do good to get good, and if you do bad, you will get bad, is not always played out in this life the way we expect it. Why? Well, again, sometimes people indeed are sinners. And Job admits that he has sinned in the past as a youth. But, even in our chapter we just read, in chapter 27, he brings up that, wait a second, there are wicked men who amass silver for themselves. They amass all these clothes. They have these great empires. And it looks like they are getting everything they want. It looks like they're living a great life. But what's their end state? What's life like for them at the end of their life? Ah. Sometimes it is a greater punishment to have good things happen to you and have those taken away than to just have bad things happen to you immediately. Would you rather fall off of a single stair? In the staircase, like you take one step and then you stumble a bit? Or would you rather get to the top of the building all the way up the stairs and then fall off the skyscraper? Sometimes God will permit that, a greater fall for a greater sinner. So the arrogant and the proud may be fully cast down for all to see. But it doesn't look just to us from the ground here and regarding the righteous. And again, we're not saying those who never sin, because there's no human being on earth with the exception of Christ. None of them are without sin. None of us are without sin. So the question is, why do we suffer? Those of us who, in spite of our sins, we seek God, we repent of our sins regularly we want to do good and we're seeking the Lord with all of our hearts what happens to us let's let's actually read from the first chapter of Job to get a picture of a person like this Job chapter one starting in verse one there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job and that man was blameless and upright one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So a picture of this righteous person, again, Not counting the fact that all of us are sinners. It says Job turned away from evil, and he later on confesses that, yes, he has sinned in the past. But the people who seek God, who want to be righteous, the people whom God has transformed and filled with the Holy Spirit to bring them to a desire to do good, a desire to be that righteous man. Why do bad things happen to them? Well, we know how it goes in the book of Job here, and let's uh, go ahead and continue reading in chapter 1. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So the cosmic bet that we read about in Job, the cosmic wager here between God and the devil, that tells us something. It tells us something that when we turn again to scripture, we will have seen in other places. This is not a unique phenomenon here. But the question is, does Job really love God? Satan uses the word fear, and and after all, there is some fear in Job's heart, a healthy, godly fear, where he's He's not just trying to follow righteousness, and he's not just trying to follow what God wants. He's even saying, well, I'd better make sacrifices just in case. i I better make sacrifices on the what-ifs here. And Satan says to God, come on. This guy doesn't really love you, does he? He loves the things you give him. He loves you being his cosmic gumball machine in the sky. Input prayer, input righteous deeds, output uh, good things, more sheep, seven sons, three daughters. But that's not really love. And you know it, don't you, God? And God says to Satan, Well, I'll prove you that he really does love me. It's a test. Suddenly now a test of Job's faith is made. So, we know what happens. Some terrible things happen, right? It's the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So bad stuff happens. All that stuff that uh, Satan is saying, this is the only reason Job really likes you, He doesn't actually love you. It's not agape love for God, loving God for God's sake. Take all that stuff away. And so God does. He permits it to be all just taken away. That's a test. We know that that happens, but how does Job respond? Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So Job passes the test. Is this unique to scripture? God either permitting or actively testing a man to see whether or not his faith is legitimate. His love for God, agape love for God, being loving God for his own sake. To see if that's legitimate, to see if the healthy fear of God is legitimate. It's happened elsewhere. In fact, let's turn to the book of Genesis here. And we're going to go to the book of Genesis, chapter twenty. One, Sorry, chapter 22. Beginning of your Bible here. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. He said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham just like abraham a real test from god of his faith yes the devil brings this to god's attention but god already knew that this was going to happen god already knew that job must be tested much in the same way he actively tested abraham's faith and by the way testing here that's an understatement it's an affliction we, we read the binding of Isaac too quickly in Genesis 22. I would love everybody to read uh, Fear and Trembling by Soren Kierkegaard. <laughs> Oftentimes I tell people he's my favorite Lutheran theologian, and why? Because he gets it. Abraham's faith was not just tested in the, the act of, will I raise the knife to slaughter my son and then burn him as an offering before God? Abraham was tested for three straight days, being told, do the unthinkable, a blasphemous human sacrifice of your own son that you have waited decade after decade after decade to have. And you finally have this son. Kill him. That is anguish. That is absolute lonely painful anguish, and nobody knew except Abraham what he was going to do, what he was going off to Moriah to do. So he had to sit there and process this in great pain and know that he was going to, in obedience to God, inflict terrible loss on himself. Now yes, he did believe, as Hebrews chapter 11 says, that God would raise Isaac from the dead. But this is still suffering inflicted on Abraham by God. And God, who is omniscient, knowing what Job was going to go through and accepting this little test by the devil here, absolutely inflicts this on Job. Job lost everything. Abraham had to put his very soul on the line. Why? It was not for their sin. This was not a disciplinary thing. This is something different. This is something deeper, isn't it? This is a test to see whether or not your faith in God is real. If you really love the Lord your God. It is a test that lays bare who you really are. What you really think. What your heart is really made of. And Job passes the test. Saying, God giveth and God taketh away. The Lord giveth the Lord, taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Abraham passes the test. But he passed it not just... Not in the moment of raising the knife to his son, but the moment he got up and said, Come on, Isaac, we're going to Moriah to make a sacrifice. Every single moment of that, Abraham was tested, and every single moment of that great and terrible journey which prefigures the Holy Gospel, Abraham passed it. And there are times of great suffering in our lives where we are tested in this same way. Because we are tempted, we are absolutely tempted to spit in God's face and say, you are a moral monster for making me go through this. I was innocent. Job was innocent. Abraham was innocent. How could you do this, God? We can shake our fist at him and there are countless people, countless apostates that actually do that. And probably even more who backslide and then later on sheepishly come back to the faith. And we praise the Lord for bringing them back. But this this idea here that God will put us through this. Why? Well, like we said, it's testing. But does that invalidate The central thesis of Job's friends, the central thesis of the law, do good to get good, and if you do bad, you get bad. And oh boy, do you get bad if you do bad. Does that invalidate it? Absolutely not. But this is the nuance that needs to be said. Think about it this way. The most righteous person who ever lived, who was it? Our Lord Jesus. So if we think about it this way, the most righteous person shall be the most blessed. Is that true with our Lord Jesus? Absolutely. In uh, Matthew 28, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. In Revelation 1.5, it says, He is the ruler of the princes of the earth. Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. He is in charge of absolutely everything. But, what happened before that? Jesus is called the man of sorrows. Jesus was rejected by his own earthly family, who all doubted, told him to come home, showed zero faith in what he was doing. He performed miracles in front of the Pharisees and the Jews, and he performed miracles that nobody could be doing, and instead of getting you must be the son of god he gets well we have to kill this guy he's tortured he's beaten he goes for weeks without food to be tempted by the devil he goes all this time and all this suffering and finally is nailed to a cross with thorns protruding through his bloody forehead The whip that they used to whip him was a cat of nine tails. They flogged him so his back flesh was hanging off of his body. And this is is Jesus. Fully God, fully human. One person, two natures, forever. Never sinned. Not even a hint of sin in him. The most righteous person to ever live, the most righteous man to ever be born, what happens to him? Again, ultimately, the most righteous is the most blessed. God rewards righteousness, but first, but first, suffering. And suffering in his case, in our Lord's case, on our behalf. That purgatory that, you know, this life is purgatory, as I said, he went through all of it times a (laughs) bajillion-D. Infinite for us, on our behalf. And we suffer for our purification and sanctification. That is the theology of the cross. We don't know anything about God outside of Christ. He reveals God to us and how God treats us and things that God does for us. We see how all of that works at the cross. And everything that happens before and after regarding the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. The most righteous is the most blessed. But the most righteous will also suffer the most before that most blessed state. And the wicked have an inverse. The most wicked will be the most cursed. We know this because the scripture tells us that the devil, the smoke of his torment will rise up forever and ever. We know. We know that the devil is going to get his. And those non-believers who hate us, who hate the church, who hate Christ who try to destroy the church on earth and those who infest and subvert churches from within we know that they're going to get theirs if they do not repent but first and all those ugly people the elites that are in charge that make our people suffer all these people who do all this ugly and disgusting stuff we know we worship a just God but first they get all the good that they're ever going to get. So it looks in this world like there is an inversion of the things that ought to happen. At least when these bad things are happening to us, it feels quite a bit like that, doesn't it? it feels quite a bit like it's just not fair. Look at all the, the wicked people out there that get everything they'd ever want. Bill Ayers bombed the Pentagon. Told children, college students, to to kill their parents. Or how about the people in charge of government doing the terrible things that they're doing? Looks like they're pretty darn successful, doesn't it? But then. And in the book of Job, at the end of it, We know how Job, how this book starts, and we kind of know how it ends. We kind of know. We kind of surmise it. So let's turn here to the end of Job. In Job 42, we see here in verse 10, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Or that word there is more of a uh, a disaster. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, and he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karan Habuch. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them as an inheritance among their brothers gave them an, an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. So, how does this work? Now, it's wisdom says it's not always going to look exactly the same. But we do see a taste of that and then in this life. The most righteous shall be most blessed. But first, suffering, which purifies. Christ suffered to purify us. He suffered that purification on our behalf, even though there was no corruption in him. And then, he's the ruler of the universe. More blessed than anybody ever. Job, a righteous man that the scripture says was upright and blameless, he should be very blessed. But first, he loses everything in this terrifying test, this contest between God and the devil. But then, God restores everything to him. And might I add, in recent years, He's a man. I'm sure we all we all know about him. He's a certain porn star, Ron Jeremy, if you remember. Hopefully, we don't remember him the wrong way. Ron Jeremy, famous porn star, rich as all get out, had all the money he'd ever want, got all the women, more women than any uh, than any man could ever want in his life. He had everything a man could ever desire in this life and more. And he got away with so much wickedness for the vast majority of his life. He could have whatever drugs he wanted. He could have whatever woman he wanted. He had all this money and he would never have to worry about it. And it didn't matter what he looked like. I mean, let's face it, the guy looked like a toad. And that's an insult to toads. But he had it all. And he was one of these people that you just... You see him and you see how wicked this guy is. Where is he now? Well now, in the twilight years of his life, he's rotting in a jail cell because he was accused of sexual assault. And whether or not he was actually guilty of that, he's suffering. We see. We see that yes... The wicked are cursed, and the most wicked is the most cursed. But first, we see them get whatever they want. And then we see their pain. We see God, well, not permitting himself to be mocked. And now, Ron Jeremy, by the time he dies, if he has not repented of his sin, he will suffer eternally. In the final and then. This is how it honestly works. And we don't always see it. Because as sinful human beings we are myopic. And we often forget that our righteousness is not ours. It is imputed to us by faith in Jesus Christ. We are justified, made holy, and considered righteous. Made righteous on Christ's account. Because of what he did. But even then. As we are given the new birth in our baptism to seek good and to want to do good, there are times when we honestly forget that our righteousness is actually Christ's righteousness. And there are times that we, we forget what Job goes through to prove that point. So, if we ask the question, why? The first answer, oftentimes, is we need to do... We need to have penitence. We need to confess our sins. God does chastise us to make us better, to sanctify us. But then also, there are many a time in which God is testing us to see if we truly do have faith in him and to put us through the cycle that leaves us better for it. That may, that as we are not worthy to go through anything better than our Lord Jesus Christ did, he mercifully gives us far less to show us what is what it is like to put us in Christ's shoes, and then to test whether we truly do believe do we love God with agape love, loving him for his own sake, no matter what there's another sometimes he allows and has this suffering happen for instruction's sake. One of my favorite verses in all of scripture is Psalm 50 verse 15. This is a command for all of us. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. We know that the second commandment of the Ten Commandments is you shall not take God's name in vain. But there's something to do instead of taking God's name in vain. There's a corollary to that. Instead of taking God's name in vain through sorcery or false oaths or using his name as a curse word, we are to use God's name rightly in prayer and praise. Psalm 50 verse 15 is a restatement of that part of the commandment. Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Oftentimes, going through suffering which we cannot control and going through this kind of pain is to teach us to truly go to the Lord. To truly seek his deliverance. In fact, God says as much in the book of Job. Let's go here to Job chapter 40, starting in the sixth verse. Remember, this is when God speaks to Job and his friends. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity, clothe yourself with glory and splendor, pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low, and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together, bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Let me read that 14th verse again. This is extremely important to all of this. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. What does that mean? God puts it extremely plain. You can't save you. I can save you. You're not me. (laughs) I love... I love how God puts things in uh, in the last part of Job. You're small, I'm big. You're weak, I'm strong. You're dumb, I'm smart. Deal with it because nobody else can save you but me. Call upon me. Because you can't do it on your own. Follow the second command to call out to me for deliverance. So we see here. in all of these things, our, our suffering and painful things that happen to us in our lives. I, I, I think I said it before, my mom has been going in and out of the emergency room. She had some surgery that was long overdue and now her, uh, her blood pressure is spiking so much that she's had to go to straight to the emergency room several times to get the, to get the blood pressure down so she doesn't die of a stroke or a heart attack over and over and over again, she's in severe pain. The actual uh, the medicines they give her for managing the pain, uh, they're limited. So much is going on. I know people who have been going through miscarriages, job loss. My own Lutheran denomination basically admits that they're firing a man who was innocent of the false accusations brought against him. But somebody wanted their scalp. But the response to this, well, I would say honestly, we need to respond the same regardless of whatever the reason is. We repent. Sometimes we'll know quite clearly whether we are being chastised and disciplined for our further sanctification. So we must repent confess our sins. And if we forgot what sins we've committed, we need to just pray to the Lord to reveal it to us and repent of all of them. We need to throw up our hands like Job does and says, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because I don't love God just for the good that he does for me. We love God because he is god because he is my savior because he is the one in the midst of all this who gives me my daily bread and even if he didn't even if he let me starve to death we must still love him and put our faith in him as our creator redeemer and sanctifier and three to call upon him to say lord deliver me lord grant me justice against my adversaries Lord, restore my fortunes. Lord, help me out of this pit. Lord, dry my tears. Lord, help me, deliver me. And as the psalm says, I am yours, save me. In fact, we can sum up a whole lot of this by saying, I am yours, save me. Because God makes it clear to Job, ain't nobody else going to do it that's our answer that's the Christian answer to suffering we live lives daily of penitence and faith every day and even if it doesn't look like it we trust that we worship a just God one who is extremely fair but he's fair in his own way and was willing to endure the greatest injustices To be fair for our sake, to save us when we did not deserve it. So we rejoice that He is the one who restores us and brings us to a better place. Sometimes in this life, as we will see these ups and downs of life, and we must see the hand of God through it. And other times we wait until the afterlife when everything is perfect and there is no more curse but we trust in the Lord and we entrust ourselves to him with penitent, loving faith. Amen and amen.